Romans 5. As we entered chapter 5 just a couple of weeks ago, Paul began in verse 1 by saying, since we have been justified by or through faith. That was his starting point. That was his, his very basis for what is to follow. Because we have been born again, because we have been declared righteous, that's what being justified means, uh, we as believers have many, many blessings. Now certainly setting aside the greatest blessing of all, which is heaven itself, uh, an undeserved eternity in the presence of God, Paul is now going to encourage the church on how our relationship with God affects us now. Okay, All we are blessed with, if you will, we have because we have been justified by faith. Now, with every single point that he gives here, starting in verse 1, he's indicating that our eternal destiny is settled. Each blessing that is stated is, is truly helping us to understand the security of the believer's salvation or the security of our eternal destiny. In verse 1, and of course this is simply a review, but in verse 1 he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember in the Greek that's called a present indicative, an indicative is simply a statement of fact. This is a fact, okay? And of course the present tense is saying it's happening now. It's happening right now. It is a fact that right now we have, not might have, not could have, but we have peace with Almighty God. Prior to our relationship with Him, uh, prior to our time of coming to faith, we were actually at war with Him. Do you guys know that we were considered an enemy of God? But because through faith our sins were paid for on the cross, we have now been reconciled with God, and therefore we have a present possession. We have peace with God. In verse 2, once again, through Christ. It's important we understand everything we have is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, he says, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So he says here that by faith, we stand in grace. And listen, folks, that cannot be undone. I don't care if you're struggling with something in your life, if you're, you're going through a time of sin or struggle, and it is, no question, a real battle. God's grace is greater than that sin. Okay? Matter of fact, right here in chapter 5, verse 20, he says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. When God's law came, it simply showed people, showed all of us that we are sinners, okay? That being said, he says, the grace of God increased because of that. And that's an amazing statement. We were saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. Or as he says here, we stand in God's grace. Still in verse 2, 
Another great point to our eternal destiny is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As was already stated in verse 1, this is because that we've been justified by faith. He says we can rejoice because we have a hope. We have a confidence. We have a surety that one day we will share in the glory of God. As Ephesians chapter 1 says, the Holy Spirit has been given to each and every believer. And Paul says, as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. I've always loved that word. The Spirit of God was given to us as a deposit, as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. One day we will know we will be with the Lord. And then moving into verse 3. Paul begins with the words, not only so, or if you will, not only that. In other words, not only through being justified do we have peace with God, not only do we have access into his grace, not only can we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but now he says we can even rejoice in our sufferings. And by the way, this is the same thing that was spoken of in James chapter 1 as well as in 1 Peter chapter 4, okay, where most people get stressed or they get anxious or frustrated through suffering, or I think the NAS uses the word tribulations, we as believers can rejoice because God allows these in our lives to sanctify us, okay? Even though We would rather be, as I said last time, we'd rather be sanctified in our sleep and somehow just wake up going woo-hoo, right? God places these difficulties in our lives to, number one, what does he say here in verse three? To produce perseverance, okay? We need to learn what we would call a staying power. We need to learn a stick-to-itiveness when difficult times come our way. And by going through these times, God will use them to refine each and every one of us, as Paul says here, to produce, what's the next thing? Character. To produce character. That word character, by the way, it speaks of a time of proving. That's what that word means. The actual Greek word for character was used in the testing of metals so as to determine their purity. Okay? When Christians go through sufferings or trials or uh, tribulations or trouble, which calls for us to persevere, what perseverance does, he says, is in us, it gives us a proven character. A proven character. Just as the metal worker uses extreme heat to melt down the metal in order to get rid of its impurities, He's saying God uses the same thing. God uses tribulation to do the same thing for you and me. And guess what? That, he says once again, brings us back home to the word hope. As verses 3 and 4 says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and that character produces hope. 
Now, believe it or not, by responding faithfully to the suffering, those are key words, folks, responding faithfully through the trials and tribulations, and then God helping us to persevere, and then seeing our character being built up, our hope increases. It becomes, our hope becomes more of an expectation. It becomes more of an assurance. And that's because, and, and I'll never stop saying this, it's because of who our hope is in. It's who our hope is in, okay? Just like Abraham in chapter 4, verse 21, he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, that's why it says he, he, he was immovable, see? Because his faith was in, was in the God who could fulfill without question the promise that he had given to Abraham. And therefore, verse 5 says that hope does not disappoint us. God will never disappoint those whose hope is grounded in him. And once again, it goes back to who our hope is in. It goes in his character. Listen, three words. God is faithful. See, God is, God is faithful. He will never disappoint those whose faith is grounded in him. So much so, look what he does. Verse 5 again. It says that he has actually given us his Holy Spirit. And not only has he given us his Holy Spirit, he says he has used the Spirit of God, what does he say? To pour out his love in our hearts. I don't think most of us uh, appreciate the fact that God has given each and every one of us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to literally indwell us. We know what it was like beforehand to live in sin, and depravity, we lived them for many of us for many years. But God gives us his Holy Spirit to help us, to come alongside of us, right? He's called the, the paraclete, the counselor, the comforter. He comes alongside of us. But he has given us his Holy Spirit. In addition to that, he says the Holy Spirit has poured out his love, God's love, in our hearts. It's that love, folks, that keeps us together, that ties us to him forever. There is never not a connection between him and us. You see, it is his love that motivates our love for him, right? Which also motivates our obedience to him. Now, before we move forward and go into the next few verses, let me just say that all of these things that I just mentioned and talked about more in depth last week, everything that we just talked about in verses 1 through 5, the fact that we have peace with God, we have peace with God. We stand in His grace knowing that we will share in His glory the fact that he has given us his Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. All of those things given us our security in Christ are ultimately based on what I just mentioned, God's faithfulness. 
We look at those as promises. We look at those things that, yeah, right on. We know these things, but we know them because God is faithful. That's why we can hold on to those. That's why we can be secure. As I mentioned, because it always goes back to who our faith is in, who our hope is in, who our confidence is in. It's not government officials. It's not our friend. It's not our spouse. It is Almighty God. And He is faithful. It's never based on how awesome that you and I are, how much faith we have. It's based on how God is faithful to those promises. As I said earlier, it's not having a hope, it's who our hope is in. I think some people struggle with their security in Christ because Many times, we talked about this in men's group, we catch ourselves bringing God down to our level. Remember, we talked about this kind of stuff. We sometimes bring God down to our level because we can't bring ourselves to his. We bring him to us. We make God as if he's just like us. Well, folks, we live in a world where where people, where, where businesses and corporations and employees and employers and no doubt politicians, husbands, and wives, and yes, even Christians are unfaithful. We live in a world, folks, of unfaithfulness in every way, shape, or form. People violating promises, and therefore that's what we've come to expect. That's just what we expect. Somebody's going to fail us. Somebody's going to lie to us. Somebody's not going to fulfill their promise. But that's not how God works. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That, that last part there where it says he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself, Christ will never go back on his promise to save those whose trust is in him. He will never renege on his promise to condemn those who will not. It goes both ways, doesn't it? To do otherwise, Paul says there at the end of that verse, would be to deny himself, which his holy and perfect nature cannot do. God cannot go against his own word. God cannot say, I'm faithful, and then not be faithful. It's impossible because he'd be denying himself. His very nature will not allow him to do that. We know God is faithful. We know it. Matter of fact, in Psalm verse 35, 36, chapter 36, verse 5, he says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. It's like saying it's, it's, it's abounding, it's limitless. The faithfulness of God is just limitless. Unlike where we live today and who we see and deal with every day, God is not like that. Matter of fact, it says very simply in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. 
And then there's a big fat period because that's what it means. For he who promised is faithful. And as the old hymn says, which comes from Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, great is what? Thy faithfulness. Folks, God is faithful to preserve his people unto eternal glory. He is faithful to his own promises. And that means from our text here in, in Romans 5, our peace with God will not end. That means our hope of sharing in his glory is not going to fade. Him giving us his Holy Spirit, whom the Apostle John says will be with us for how long, you know? Forever. Whom Paul says is a seal guaranteeing our inheritance that will never be broken. For the true believer in Christ, we need to know that. These are not just things we can go, yeah! We can, know, we can know that we know that we know because it's who it's based on. It's God Almighty. Now that I got that out of my thoughts, we can move into verses 6 through 8 this morning. And in verses 6 through 8, Paul here seems to have a single focus, and that is, if you didn't notice in our music this morning, that is the love of God. The love of God. Coming off of verse 5, saying that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, he's seemingly going to show us the character of God's love, or what one commentator literally says or calls magnanimous not a word I use very often, but the love of God is magnanimous. Don't ask me to spell that. Read with me verses 6 through 8. Just coming off verse 5, speaking of the love of God poured out in our hearts, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So dropping back, if you will, to verse 6, before he gets into his illustration on the love of God, he begins with what I would simply call just a little hint of God's sovereignty. Notice he starts the verse by saying, at just the right time. Now, for you and I today, we still use that language, right? But we use it basically as a figure of speech. I was thinking of just a couple things. You're on, a, you're on a road trip somewhere, you're going a long way, and you decide to pull off on the freeway to get some gas, not knowing that it was another 100 miles before the next gas station. And somebody looks at you and says, boy, you pulled off in just the right time. You have some things you need to drop off at your buddy's house. I'll swing by sometime on Saturday. And when you get around to it, you do just that. And right when you get to your buddy's house, 
He's pulling the burgers off the grill. Right? And somebody says, you're here, what? Just the right time. For God, it's not just the right time in that sense. It is the exact time in his eternal plan. God's word doesn't, we use things sometimes a little differently than God does in his word, don't we? It's the exact time in the plan of God. Thayer's Greek agrees with it when it says it speaks of a fixed or a definite time. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says these words. He says, But when the time has fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Kenneth Weiss simply says the earth stage was all set for the greatest event in the history of the human race. At God's perfect time, he sent forth his incarnate son. But God didn't just have a time for sending Christ to this earth, as he says there in Galatians, but also a time for his death. We're told right here in verse 6, at just the right time, the exact time within God's plan, in other words, it's the time that he wanted, it says Christ died. Now Jesus himself knew that there was a time and that certain things needed to be fulfilled before it could come. Jesus knew that. This is why in the Gospel of John, Jesus made statements like, my time has not yet come. The time for me has not yet come. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. One more, at this he says they tried to seize Jesus, but no one could lay a hand on him. They literally could not seize him physically. They could. He's right there. They couldn't because Jesus says, my time has not yet come. There was a pre-designed hour for his coming, for his death, and I believe also for his resurrection and for his ascension. Everyone thought they were in control of everything, right? The Jewish leaders, they thought they were in control. Well, then the Roman leaders, no, we're in control. Maybe even Judas thought he was the one since he gave them up for 30 pieces of silver. But God was already using their evil strategy to fulfill his perfect plan. Yeah, folks, God has a plan and he will work within the evil of man. But his plan will be fulfilled, period. He doesn't go, oh, shoot, I didn't know that was going to happen. He doesn't do that. God is sovereign. Back in Romans chapter 5 or 6, I'll read it again. He says, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now here's where we get into the love of God, see. 
Now, that word powerless can also mean uh, uh, helpless. It can also mean uh, to be weak. But I think the word powerless is the best translation, and that is based on the context. We were powerless. And the fact that it says this, the fact that it says we were powerless, and then notice in the verse, it then it, right after that it says we were powerless, and then Christ died for the ungodly, that tells me that the fact that the word powerless means we're powerless to save ourselves. We are powerless, therefore what happened? Christ died for the ungodly. We're powerless, he's saying, to save ourselves. That's the context. As Paul has already discussed, and we've discussed this in the prior four chapters, as he has also spoken on in the book of Galatians, there is nothing any man, any man can do to save themselves. Not one single solitary thing. Folks, that is the definition of what powerless is. Nothing. Zilch. We can't do anything. Even the perfect moral law of God couldn't save us. We've studied that too as we dealt with the Jews. Folks, we were powerless to overcome our own sin, and therefore we were powerless to conquer death. Thus, as one commentator says, here came the greatest manifestation of God's love in all of history. Because we're powerless, we couldn't do it ourselves. We were powerless. We were lost in our own sin. And so Christ, he says, had to die for the ungodly. There are two points here. Yes, Christ died. Extremely important, obviously. But turn over real quick to Philippians chapter 2. It just does a good job here in explaining what took place. And when you think about the love of God, Philippians chapter 2, he just says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And of course, he just got through talking about his humility. Okay, Now he's going to explain the humility of God, but also the love of God. Look what it says. Talking about Christ, it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to let it go. It says, but he made himself nothing. He gave up his position in heaven, right? What did he do? He took the very nature of a servant. That's actually doulos. It means a slave. He was made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Jesus Christ, who at this point we knew as the second person of the triune Godhead, meaning before he came onto this earth, was with, if you will, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet he left, if you will, his throne in glory 
and wrapped himself in flesh and bones, just like you and me, just like a servant. And he did so, and he came to the point in obedience, he says, to death, even the horrible, torturous death on a cross. It was ugly, folks, not just the death, but everything that even led up to his death. The beatings, the flogging. Go back to the end of Isaiah 52, not just Isaiah 53, but he was, what's the word? He was um, unrecognizable. We use the term beaten to an oblivion. I mean, he's like, he's like, his back was like hamburger. They pulled his beard, plucked the hair out. And of course, he suffered on a cross. It's literally suffocating with nails and everything through his hands. Wow. He did that for us. In case you want to know about not just the humility, but the love of God, right? But in addition to that, in addition to that, it's just one word that he has in here. He died, yes, but who did he die for? The ungodly. The ungodly. Folks, he didn't die because you and I were worth dying for. He didn't suffer because you and I were just so worthy. We're, we're just such great people. Matter of fact, God's love and therefore God's grace, was poured out on us despite the fact that we were none of that. None of it. As I said earlier, we were at war with God. We were his enemy. We literally stood opposed to God. Right here in chapter 8, verse 7, it says, the sinful mind is hostile towards God. Lord knows we had a sinful mind. We were hostile towards God, he says. Folks, I can't tell you how unlovable we were. I, it, <laughs> there's not enough words to describe how unlovable we were. We worshipped other things. We dedicated our lives to other things. We wanted nothing to do with him. Literally, Satan had enslaved our hearts. That's what the word ungodly means ungodly. It means godless. Without fear, without reverence for God, period. Yet that did not affect his coming and his dying. Because that is God's love for us. Matter of fact, later in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, I know many of you know this, but Listen, he, he, he gives kind of the insight onto the love of God. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's, that's a pretty amazing love. Now, to expand on the thought that God's love is, is literally extraordinary, Paul says in verse 7, I guess I should turn back to my text. Paul says here in verse 7, he says, look it, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Now he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Now, going back just a couple of chapters here in Romans chapter 3, Paul is going to speak, I'm going to use these things, Paul is going to speak on God's terms. You might just say Paul's going to speak theologically, if you will. He's going to speak on God's terms. And let me show you. At the end of verse 10, starting in verse verse 10, he says there is no one who is righteous. None, right? He says not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. For all have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, he is not, Paul is not contradicting himself here in chapter 5 when he speaks of, I might die for a righteous man or a good man. Because we know there is none. Okay, But he's simply speaking on our terms. He's talking theologically in, in chapter 3, this is the way it is. Zilch nada, not a single human being is righteous, not even one. Zero is good, nobody does good, not even one, period. That's the way it is. But even though there is truly no good person, there is no one righteous, there is no one holy, there is no one that faithful, there just isn't. Sometimes you and I still use words like that describe certain people who might, who might very well be, in our world, really good people, right? Maybe they're very humble people. Maybe they're selfless people. But we use those terminologies. And so the point being made, though, here is it's not about those people. It's about the love of God. Look at what it says. In our world, Paul says, Very rarely, those are his words, very rarely will anyone die for a, quote, righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might, might possibly, use the words he, might possibly dare to die. Maybe. One in a million. Or probably might, that's too small. So you might give their own life for a, quote, good man or a righteous man. In other words, there are those rare moments in life when you find someone who seems to be noble, seems to be an upstanding person who might sacrifice his life for someone else. Now, for you and me today, you might think of a story on the news or something when when someone jumps in front of an oncoming car to, to save a young child. Or maybe someone runs into a burning house that even the firemen won't run into because they know it's going to collapse and kill who's ever in there. Society pictures these people as heroes, selfless people who literally ended their lives so someone else could live. It's rare, as he says here. Jesus said in in, in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. But in no way, listen, in no way does that even come close 
to the selfless love of God. Okay? Notice verse 8. So he just gets through saying, very rarely, and we're talking about a righteous man, a good man, very hard to find that anybody would ever die for him, but it says, but God, and I looked this up in every translation, everybody has it, but God, on the other hand, what did he do? He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still righteous? No. While we were still godly? No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ooh, that verse means a whole lot more when you put it with the previous verse, doesn't it? So he begins with the words, but God. Folks, there's a total separation between the love of God and the love of man. Even the man who might very rarely die to give his life for someone else. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. It's not, it's not man dying for whom he thinks is righteous, which Paul even says is very rare, but it's Almighty God lowering himself, as I read in Philippians 2, to die for sinners. Sinners. To quote MacArthur, he says, Christ died for us when we were undesirable and worthless and helpless and impotent and enemies and hostile and haters of God, haters of Christ, rejecters of truth, proud and self-willed. And the best that could be said about us is that our righteousness is filthy rags. Our heart is desperately wicked full of deceit. He says, that's the best we got. And listen, folks, verse 8 is not just speaking of the good sinners. Everybody's a sinner. He's not just speaking of the good sinners. The neighbor you have who seems to be a super nice guy. You were sick and he came over and mowed your lawn. Or any other people you might picture. He's not, just, he's not just dying for the good sinners. He's dying for the worst of the worst. Who do you think of when you think of the worst of the worst? Who is it? Hitler? That's a good one. Saddam Hussein? Trump? Okay. Who else? Child molesters, right? You can think of Mao Zedong. You can think of Pol Pot. You can think of numerous people who are the worst of the worst. These are the people that are so depraved towards other human beings that sometimes people will look at them and say, I hope you rot in hell. You ever seen people do that? Like maybe in a court of law? Some, some mother is there and some child molester you know, raped and murdered her seven-year-old. I hope you rot in hell. But folks, Christ died for them too. That is the love of God. These aren't just good sinners, which is an oxymoron in and of itself. 
You see what I'm saying? It's not the lighthearted sinners. Better than other sinners, it's sinners. He calls them ungodly. It's the word for godless, godless. But folks, that's the love of God. And if God is willing to give that kind of love to ungodly sinners, we know that he loves his children enough to bring us all the way to glory. See? Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we... We do think of your, uh, as was said, your magnanimous love. We think of your faithfulness. We think of how you fulfill your promises. Lord, we think of everything you have told us that is ours on this earth and certainly that which will be ours one day in glory. I hope every time I say that we all understand that we are undeserving in every way. It's never a proud statement. It's a thankful statement. It's a grateful statement. But Lord, I thank you that we can see these scriptures, that we can see what you've said, we can see your promises, and we know they will be kept. We know we do have an eternal security. We know we do have these things because you are faithful, because you are loving. You cannot go and deny yourself. Lord, help us not to bring your character down when sometimes we can't figure it out and we almost picture you thinking like us, which you don't do. Thank you, God, that you are a holy God, a perfect God, a majestic God that will only do good to his children even though we don't deserve it. We thank you, Lord, just for our brief time today that we can be reminded of the great, great love of God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.